0: You're listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, as we continue worshiping this morning, we turn now our attention to God's Word And now we are going to turn to Psalm 35. Psalm 35, continuing an exposition of the Psalms one by one, we come now to Psalm 35. As I've said many times, we fall in the first book of the Psalter. Psalms 1 through 41 comprise the first book. These are Psalms of David. Almost all of them say that. And it focuses on God's kingship over his people. And we've seen a series here of, speaking of of how God rules over us. He's a God who forgives in Psalm 32. A king who is worthy of our praise, Psalm 33. A king whose promises are greater than our circumstances, Psalm 34. And we see here a king who is just, a just king here in Psalm 35. So let us hear God's word. And this sermon is titled, A Plea for Justice. And that's exactly what we are to listen for as David takes upon his lips a plea that God would do what is just in the world that is so full of injustice. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 35 of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft, but I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for a friend or my friend or my brother as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning, but at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those who rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink an eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent, O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether, who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor, who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise All the day long. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. One commentator has said about Psalm 35, it is more of an outpouring rather than a coherent, organized poem. We come to this psalm, and I do think it is one of the more obscure psalms, and I'm not sure why that is. Maybe there's a number of reasons. One of them is the length. It is one of the longer psalms. It doesn't have many of those pithy statements that we often like to come back to and cherish. But as I was looking and trying to see what Psalms do people put on their top 10 list, this one doesn't make the list very often. But nevertheless, it's a wonderful place for us to come and contemplate our great God, to come and allow him to speak to us and tell us what he is like and what he is doing in the world around us. There's a clear theme that arises, and I hope you heard as we read it, It is justice. God is a God of justice, but it also brings in here our experience of injustice in this life. There's a number of places we see this, but just a few here in verse seven, we see there's without cause, there's evil being done to David without cause. There's injustice being done to him. Verse 11, there's these malicious witnesses rising up to lie, to harm David. David says, I have no idea what they're talking about, but they're making allegations and lying in court. Verse 15, there's rejoicing when they cause David to stumble. In verse 24, there's this call, call for vindication. David is saying, God, may you vindicate me for I am in the right, they are in the wrong, they are pursuing injustice, but I pray you would do what is right. This is part of the beauty of the Psalter. Is it, expre- is, is it it? addresses a full spectrum of experiences in this life. So whether today you feel this weight of injustice on you or not, this is one of those avenues that we see God ruling and reigning. And, and it addresses so many different places that we find ourselves in life. And so particularly today, those who are under that weight of these false accusations, we find great hope. So what we're going to do this morning is to look at this text. Is First, we're going to just briefly look at the major parts of this text and try to understand what's going on in these full 28 verses. And then we're going to take a step back and explore that subject of injustice a little more directly as it arises here in the Psalms. So so we're going to first take a step back or first look at, at the big picture and then we're going to take a step back and look at this subject of injustice. We'll see here, God cannot tolerate injustice. And in his perfect justice, he makes all things right. Let's look at our text in front of us. This is one of those psalms where commentators cannot agree how it is structured. And maybe that's one of the difficulties for us, wrapping our hands around it. There's no clear way that it's it's divided. And so different commentators take different approaches. I'm going to explain a, a structure here that comes from James Hamilton. And what he basically says, we've talked about this before, there, a Hebrew construction, they have what's called... A chiasm where you have the outside pieces that correlate to one another and you move in with these next outside pieces correlating to each other and you keep moving in to the center, which is the focus. And so you have these parallel pieces at the beginning and end moving towards the center, the focus. And I think Hamilton is correct in the way that he outlines this, or most correct, as as I found among the commentators. So there's a couple sections here, and we're going to just take it each, each chunk. The beginning and end, it begins with confidence in God, verses 1 through 3 and 27 and 28. This is a plea and a prayer. The first part, he's in, in confidence, he's coming to God, pleading for God to save him. And in the end, he's confident of God's deliverance and is rejoicing. He begins with a call for God to contend to fight very strong, vivid language. And he uses language that's both defensive with the shield and the buckler and language that is also offensive with the shield and the javelin. He's asking God to work, be on the move, for God to protect him. And he says, verse three, say to my soul, I am your salvation. He wants God to confirm to him in his own experience, in his own soul, that I am for you. I am with you. And at the end, this is a wonderful conclusion. I'm just going to read it again. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant." Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. What great confidence as he's seeing God work, as he's wrestling through his realities in light of what God is, realities in light of God's promises, he comes to this great point of resolution. So this is the beginning and the end, the the confidence of David. And then we move in a section. And we see justice for the unjust. David is calling upon God to bring justice upon those who are unjust. Verses 4 through 8 and 19 through 26. And this is the largest section of the psalm. These two pieces put together, the largest section. There's a couple of examples here of the kind of justice that David's calling for. In verse 4, it says, Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil schemes. Verse six, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Verse eight, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it, into his destruction. He's calling for destruction. He's calling for them to be defeated. Verse 26, let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. These kinds of praying for the demise and the downfall of other people is what we call an imprecation. We had licensure in Sunday school and now imprecation here in the service. These big words, imprecation, it is simply a curse asking for something to happen to somebody else, a, a malevolent word, a malediction, an imprecation. David is calling for curses upon the head of these people. Now, this is not personal vengeance he's asking for, but he's calling for divine justice upon evil. We're going to hold that idea. We're going to come back to it at the end. And imprecations, what does this mean for us? But David is doing it. He's calling for these curses upon these unjust enemies. And he's invoking the promises that God gave to Israel and to him, that God would rescue Israel from the enemy, that anybody who is attacking Israel, God would ward off those attacks. God would keep his people safe as long as God's people were faithful, as long as the king was faithful. And he's calling God to remember his promises and to rescue them from their adversaries. So this is the longest and most significant, this justice for the unjust. These imprecations make up most of the psalm, but let's keep moving towards the center. And there's a praise for deliverance. It's interesting. This is on both sides where where of these imprecations. God is still, David is still praising God for God's deliverance. He knows God will deliver him. And we see this in verses nine and 10 and 17 and 18. And he's highlighting here God's care. He highlights the poor and the needy. God cares for even the poor and the needy, even the ones who other people might reject and malign. God cares for them. And he uses this wonderful language in verse 17. He speaks of my precious life. He's calling God to protect and to defend his precious life, a life that is unique, a life that is full of dignity, a life that is worthy of protection. So God delivers. And so David highlights how God has done that. And moving into the middle, we're almost there. We come to injustice from the wicked. Now he's speaking more directly. What has the wicked done? This is verse 11 and 12 and 15 and 16. The wicked, he's showing how wicked they are, how unjust they are. They're full of false accusations and plotting and scheming and planning for David's downfall. This is unprovoked, as we'll see. There's no excuse. There's no justification for their evil. They are just out and out, evil and unjust people. And then we come to the center. Verses 13 and 14. And remember in our sandwich a uh, chiastic structure here. The center is the most important. And this here speaks of David's righteousness. Let me read these two verses again. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieve for a friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. He says, when they were sad, I was grieved. I cared for them, I had compassion upon them, but yet, even though I was compassionate towards them, they rewarded my good with evil. They're still doing evil. And it highlights the injustice, it highlights the difficulty of David's experience. And this is an intentional contrast between these unjust accusers and the just king, and further highlighting that pain and the unjust treatment that David has received. So this is, in summary form, the the whole of the psalm. We took a few minutes to do that, but let's consider for a few more minutes. What does this say about injustice in our world, our experience of justice? As it arises in our psalm, it first tells us this, injustice is real and injustice is evil. The Bible is honest. Sometimes we like to talk about the heroes of the Bible, but the reality is the Bible doesn't present anybody as a hero. David is a hero in some ways, but in many ways, he's a great failure. Moses and Noah and Abraham and Samson, all of these great heroes of the faith are not heroes because the Bible is honest. It tells us about all of their sin, all of their failures. They could not live up. He could not accomplish salvation. They are not heroes. There are no heroes in the Bible except one, and that's Christ. And so the Bible is honest about what experiences in this world are like. And that's one of the, the things about the Psalms that's so helpful as we try to keep in focus the promises of God. But what does that look like on a day in, day out basis? when we see difficulties arising and an injustice in our world. The Bible is honest about these things and it does us no good to pretend like the evils of the world and the injustice of the world do not exist. We see it over and over here, but what is injustice? It is a failure to apply true standards of justice and right and wrong to any situation. It's a failure to apply true standards of justice and right and wrong to any situation. In other words, it's a failure to give somebody their due. I think we ought to be thankful that we live in a society that was intentionally based upon a sensible understanding of justice. You know, the the figure of Lady Justice on many court buildings across the land where she stands there with, with a blindfold on and holding out the scales of justice proving that she's not letting personal bias, she doesn't know who the people are that are coming before her. She's not gonna let her personal opinions affect the objective realities, what justice must be done. And she's holding the scales that are equal, that are even, the, the, the scales that are true and right. She's not putting her thumb on the scales. She judges rightly. I'm thankful to God for this general thrust in our society, but it is not perfect. There are many places where it is not perfect. Injustice is a result of sin, and it's one of those issues we deal with because we are in a fallen world. Before the fall, there was no injustice, and injustice is a result of evil because we are in a fallen world. And I think we all have an innate sense of this, right? We all have an innate sense that people ought to be treated fairly and, and with equity. And I think this innate sense comes from the fact we are all made in the image of God and we are all made with a understanding of justice and a God who is just. So even the unbeliever has a sense of justice. And we've heard a lot of talk about justice in our world over the, especially the last handful of years. The phrase, that's not fair, is a very early complaint that many make. probably heard it in your household a few times. That's not fair because we all have that inner sense implanted by God of justice. Things need to be, people need to be treated fairly. And every time we cry, that's not fair because we see it all around in the world and we experience it ourselves. We are saying the world is not how it should be because injustice is evil. Injustice is a perversion of that which is good and right and true in God. It is a perversion of his absolute pure and right justice. And it dishonors him. So it's evil because injustice dishonors God, but injustice also has harms horizontally. It harms other people. It harms other individuals. And in many cases, the harm is deep, And some here come today feeling that harm, that pain, very deeply and the injustice that they have suffered at the hands of an individual or otherwise. And so we need to feel the weight. Feel the weight of something happening to you that should not happen to you. Feeling the weight of false accusations being leveled against you. It is the weight that our brothers and sisters feel even this morning in this room as they sense this injustice in the world. Injustice, though, is measured by God. Injustice is not measured on my subjective sense of what I think right and wrong is. It's not measured by by me uh, setting the scales. Justice is measured by God. You are not the standard of justice. But it is interesting, Scripture is full of discussions from beginning to end of how important it is to treat the poor correctly, the needy correctly, the people who don't have resources to defend themselves, how important that is for every society to treat them well. And it's often highlighted in scripture. And James even goes so far as to call out explicitly the sin of partiality, the sin of partiality. And that's saying, these facts are the same in these two situations, but because I know you, I'm gonna treat you better. Because you're better looking, I'm gonna give you favored privilege. Partiality. And in James' example, it was when somebody walks into church and they're dressed in the best clothes and they've got a lot of money, oh, you say, oh, come sit right here on the front row. But somebody who comes in without much money, clearly they're poor, you pay them no regard and no attention. This is the sin of partiality. That is injustice to treat one person better because he has more money than somebody else. What it's saying is you are not one of us. You are not one of us. And oh, that is dark. Our hearts are prone to this though. And so we need to be careful in our own hearts. Where are our own hearts set on injustice, set on pursuing those who are like us and giving disregard to those who may be marginalized in other ways? Well, because it is evil, there is divine judgment for injustice. There is divine judgment on injustice. These imprecations, these calling upon curses on injustice, that is good and right and true because there will be justice for injustice. It will be meted out, whether now or ultimately in eternity. And we'll circle back to that. But injustice is manifest in many ways in our world. We can often think about think of it in individualistic terms where you have a boss who refuses to promote you even though you're clearly the best, even though you perform the best, whether a teacher who will not give you 100 because that teacher, for some reason, you don't think likes you, injustice, maybe a parent, family member, people who treat you unjustly, who refuse to believe you even though you have given them no reason to doubt your truth. Whatever it is, we feel this. There's also another layer of this individual injustice, and that's a layer that some would call traumatic abuse. The PCA, we recently did a study and asked a committee to do a whole study report for us on domestic abuse and sexual assault. And these are matters of extreme injustice, taking advantage of position of power and authority to abuse other people. This is great injustice, and it leaves a wake of trauma and hurt and pain there is great individual injustice. But it is also true that there can be systems set up that are unjust. Systems can be unjust. And we can look back in our own history of our nation and see this institution of slavery was permitted by our system. It was unjust to do that and to allow that. It was unjust for an entire people group to be treated as no more than property. It was gravely unjust, and so systems can be unjust as well. I'm thankful that we do; we are in a, a, a milieu that cares about justice. But in the pursuit of justice in our world, the world often distorts it. And instead of the categories of right and wrong, the categories that God sets up, they set up now new categories, and they permit injustice on certain bases. And so we need to be careful as we consider what real justice is to not allow the world's definition of justice to define it for us. We come back to God, what is right and wrong according to him and partiality as he defines it, not as the world defines it. But this experience of injustice for so many lasts so long. Lasts their entire lives sometimes. Verse 17, it says, how long, O Lord, will you look on? It's that cry of, this is lasting what feels like forever. And indeed, some of our brothers and sisters, our forefathers, spent their entire lives under the chains of slavery and injustice. Injustice can go deep and can last a lifetime in this world. So we see that that, that injustice is real, injustice is evil, and so what, the question is, how do we respond to it? What do we do when there is injustice in our world, and our lives, what do we do? Well, the first is to remember God's promises. Remember God's promises. And there's that promise that maybe supersedes all other promises that God, because of Christ, is with us. In this moment of your experience, you have the God of heaven and earth who loves you and cares for you and is with you. The God of heaven and earth who is protecting you God is with us. And that's why verse three is so dear and so wonderful. The the last part of verse three, where David prays to the Lord, say to my soul, I am your salvation. He knows it. It is true, but I need to feel this and understand this. And so we understand this by remembering the promises of God that he is with us. And we say, oh Lord, help me know that you are my salvation. You are with me. One of the ways we remember the promises of God is to take a psalm like this and to pray a psalm like this. To take a psalm like this, or many will do, but take a psalm and to meditate upon it, to sit in it, not just read it to check a box, but to sit into it, sit, sit in it and let it speak to our hearts and our souls and our minds. Let it conform, let your thinking conform to the way the psalms think. Allow God to speak to you in his word. It's not merely an intellectual endeavor coming to God's word. It is an opening up your very self to the promises of God. And so we come to a psalm like this where we're praying, we're seeking divine justice. We're seeking the personal good of our accusers like David did in verse 13 and 14. So we remember God's promises and in prayer, there is communion with God. Even in prayer, God is answering our prayer. That that prayer, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Even when we pray that, God is answering. Because in the moment of that prayer, God is with you, communing with you, and reminding you of his everlasting love. And so we remember God's promises. The first is that God promises to be with us. But we also remember God's promise that he will alleviate injustice. He will alleviate injustice. Now, these prayers that we have read are divinely inspired. This is not just the prayers of some guy who lived a long time ago. They are that. But this is divinely inspired. This is God's word for us. And so these prayers reflect true promises of God. So he's asking for deliverance. So what do we do with that in our lives? What do we do when when there is here praying for deliverance and and it doesn't look like there's deliverance in my life when it looks like the injustice continues? We know these promises are fulfilled sometimes now, but always in the future. Sometimes God will hear our prayers and deliver us out of that immediate situation, that immediate injustice. Sometimes God will do that. And we rejoice when he does that because that is him answering our prayers and caring for us in such a tender, wonderful way. But we also need to understand that God will alleviate injustice sometimes now, but it will always be in the future. There is a day coming where every wrong that is done to you in this life will be called to account, every evil will be punished everything that is unjust will be righted with a just punishment. And so we have to hang on to this promise. We have to come back to it over and over and realize, where is our treasure, as Jesus says? Is our, my treasure here on this earth? Where's my treasure in heaven? Am I awaiting Christ's return for him to come and to make all things right, to make all things new, to make this the land where righteousness dwells, a place where justice dwells? Or do I think it's upon me to make this place here and now the heaven that only Christ can bring? Am I trying to make it that? There is a day coming when every evildoer will be punished, period. And there is great hope for the Christian in that. Not that we're hoping for other people's downfall, but we know that evil must be punished. It is the evil that is the problem here. And God promises in his good time to alleviate injustice and to bring rights to every wrong situation. And so we remember, We have to remember, we have to consider, we have to come back to our God, remember his promises, promise he is with us, promise he will alleviate us. This does not have the final say in my life. This injustice is not the final word. Christ is coming. There's another way we respond to injustice. Yes, we remember God's promises, but we also have to recognize this psalm is not first about you. This psalm is not first about you and me. It's not first about our own experiences even. Now, yes, we can apply it that way as we've been doing so far. But first, this psalm is about David. David wrote it. It says clearly at the beginning of David. And who is David? He's the king of Israel. And God had promised to preserve Israel through David. And God told David, when you are obedient to me, I will preserve you. I will protect you. I will make you a great nation. And so... This is about David as a king. And as a king, he is experiencing these injustice and, and David is, is asking a part, based on these covenantal promises God made to rescue him then and there because in his experience of injustice was an attack on God's people as a whole and on God himself. As the king, he represented God's people. So these attacks were attacks on God's people as a whole and God himself. So first, the psalm is about David, speaking of Israel. And in the Old Testament, what it was like to relate to God and this covenant nation. But David is foreshadowing somebody far greater. David is a mere picture for us of the greater king. David was, yes, a king, and we call him a type and a shadow because he was, as we said, he's no hero. He's to point us to the greater king who is to come the greater king that was promised to David in that very same covenant, the greater king who would come and ultimately deliver his people. And yes, of course, this psalm is about Jesus Christ. This psalm this psalm, contained the words of Jesus Christ. This psalm reflects his experience in this world and particularly on the cross. And I think there's two profound ways in this text that Jesus, that we understand how this is speaking directly of Christ. See verses first, verse 13 and 14, the center of the Psalm. Why this is the most important because I think this highlights the fact David understood there was a greater king coming after him. And here he was showing us what this greater king was going to be like. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. This is Christ's lamentation, even for those who reject him. This is the heart of Christ for even those who unjustly treat him, who malign him, who curse him, who even put him to death. Christ did nothing to provoke the evil of his his injustice. Injustice. He did nothing to cause it. There is no hint of sin that might have in some way justified what they did. No. These are the words of Christ. I did everything to pursue their good and love them. And yet they still come after me with swords and a riot and a cross. Do we have grief? for unbelievers? I think we see here grief Jesus experiences for those who reject him. Do we have that same kind of burden for the unbelievers? Do we love them, even those who hate us? Jesus didn't he say, right? Don't hate your enemy, love them. Jesus is is demonstrating that here, what that looks like. Do we have the burden of them? Do we love them? Do we do all we can to care for them now? This is what a small picture of Jesus' heart for those even who reject him. Well, how much more does this show us the love of Christ for us? Those who rejected him, those while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love that he has for us, even in our own continuing sin, the love of Christ will never be destroyed, it will continue forever and ever Christ's love is so glorious for his people. It is beyond our comprehension. And so we see the person of Christ in this compassion that, that arises in the middle of the psalm. But I think we also see Christ in this psalm we, as we conclude it with verse 27 and 28. We see this ending, this great joy that we have. And it says, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. And David's speaking there in a a provisional way. David clearly wasn't perfectly righteous in every way, but there was a a provisional righteousness he shared, the, the way he treated these people righteously. And so he's saying, let the people rejoice in me as their king who's done these things rightly and well. Of course, no one can truly and fully and completely say that statement except Christ. And this is a blessing upon us. Listen to this again. Let those who delight in my righteousness. This is a prayer of Jesus. Let those who delight in me and my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. It's a promise that Christ makes us shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. God delights in our welfare, in our being, in our health, and in, in what we have before us, in, in our experience in this life. He delights in giving us good things. We delight in the righteousness of Christ. We delight in what he has done for us. We delight in who he is and the everlasting promises that are ours and his. We delight in that, and then we can shout with joy and be glad. And again, this is the question where is your mind? What do you set your mind upon? What is your heart fixed upon? What is most valuable to you? Is it this world and your experience now, or is it the world to come and our Savior? who loves you more than you can ever imagine. Only in Christ does injustice in this world make sense. You go to survey all the various religions and see how they make sense of injustice and evil in the world. And frankly, at the end of the day, they can't. I, I don't have any satisfaction in their answers. Sometimes evil is just an accident. And it didn't really, you know, we don't really know what to do with it. Sometimes sometimes part of us is evil. You know, Eastern religions think evil is just part of the, 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 the basics of nature. So evil is always going to be there. No, evil is not good. It is not how it should be. And it is only in light of the cross that that evil makes sense. Not that evil is good. But in light of the cross, we see how a world who intended evil a world who committed the most unjust act ever in the history of the world. But the world intended for evil, God intended for good. And we see in that moment of the death of the perfect spotless lamb, we see the forgiveness of all of our sins. We see the righteousness of Christ coming to us. And we see that down payment, that promise, that glimpse of what is to come the hope of eternal life, the hope that every unjust thing will be made right. God in heaven is just holding his judgment in abeyance for a time that more might come to Christ and know the joy and the gladness of his righteousness. So yes, we grieve for a while. We experience evil for a while. But it is only in light of the cross that promise that this is not how things will be forever. That all that is is evil beginning to be undone. The the, the chains are beginning to be loosened and they will be, we will be set set loose. We will be free finally and completely when Christ returns. What others intend for evil in our lives, God intends for good. And through Christ, his intention will surely prevail. I think it's dangerous in this world to go through seasons of hardship and seasons of this, these kinds of injustices we speak of and to try to figure out exactly what God is doing. We can't know in the moment what he is doing. And sometimes on the back end, we can look back and say, wow, look what the Lord has done. And, and we might know, we might see some glimpse and some hint of what God is doing. And I think that's not the way we approach the injustice and the evil that we have to experience in this world. It's not looking for what God is doing. It is trusting in him saying what this world is intending for evil, I know, God, you are going to use for good. You abhor the evil that is happening, and I await your righteous judgment. So can Christians pray imprecatory psalms? Can we pray this? Can we come back to this and now pray this against our neighbor who we don't like? Even against those people who persecute the church? Well, I'm gonna say yes, caveat. Yes, we pray imprecatory psalms. Yes, this is a part of the Christian vocabulary, but we pray them through Christ. And we do not pray them as an act of personal vengeance. So this isn't a personal offense somebody's caused for me. I'm praying imprecatory psalms upon them. But it's a prayer through Christ, anticipating that evil will receive its just reward and will be wiped away at the final judgment. Yes, we pray this more against evil in the abstract. We're going to end the evil we experience, but it's not about personal vengeance. It's not me getting even with the person who's done this to me. Because what we've read earlier, right? Romans 13, Romans 12. Speaking of, we are to repay evil with good. And that's exactly what we see here. Christ, the example of this, he repaid evil with good. And we are called to do the same thing. We're not called to go and pick up swords against those who persecute us. But through Christ, we can anticipate And we can plead with God that he would be faithful to his promise that evil will receive its just reward and will be wiped away. Nevertheless, we seek the good of individuals who harm us. And we do pray that they would know Christ. We pray that they would come to see their sin and the grave injustice that they have committed. And yes, this does not foreclose the seeking justice in the worldly sense, seeking justice to protect yourself from other people who are harming you and seeking to change injustice in this world, absolutely. But the hope here, these Psalms are prayed through Christ, understanding what he has done, understanding the promise that is coming at his return. we look at our world, there's a lot of talk about injustice today. And again, like I said, the last few years, we've all heard it spoken of more and more and more. And there's words like social justice that we hear, and what does it mean? And it's actually not even a bad term. Did you know our old hymnal that we just uh, discontinued six months ago? It had a whole section on social justice hymns. So social justice is not a bad idea in and of itself, but our world is thinking of it. Our world is trying to understand what does this mean? What does justice look like? And we are all called in whatever sphere we're in to pursue justice ordered by God. This is a good and right endeavor for us all to do. It is simply loving our neighbor to pursue justice for all of those near us. But we recognize the world is fallen and your pursuit of justice in this world will never result in heaven on earth. It will never result in a utopia. Justice on this world will never completely be done until Christ's return. So pursue it, but understand it in light of Christ, what he has done. i talk to the unbeliever for a minute. You probably like the idea of justice. Our world likes the idea of justice, and this is a good thing. But I wanna reiterate what I just said. You cannot bring injustice to an end in this world. Only God can and God will. If you carry the weight of making this world perfectly just on your shoulders, you will break. You will groan under the weight of injustice that continues, and you will take that to your grave. The world is fundamentally broken and you are fundamentally broken. And you have no hope apart from Christ, apart from the one who promises to reverse the curse on this world, who promises to make all things new. Your groaning for injustice is ultimately going to condemn you because you yourself cannot live to that standard of justice that you want to hold others to. There's only one hope for you, that's Christ. That is Jesus Christ who submitted to injustice to reorder the world and bring true eternal justice, and He is your only hope. Look to Him, trust in Him, and rest in Him. And for the Christian, this teaches us to pursue justice, to lament injustice, to hate injustice, to see it is truly evil. Those in our communities who experience injustice, don't just let that pass you by. Justice is not a dirty word. It's a part of how you love your neighbor. But in your life, when injustice crashes down upon you, you can only run to Christ. That's what the psalm teaches us to do, to run to the one who is just and rejoice in the one who has all true good righteousness and rest in him. He acknowledges your sufferings and promises to repair it all in his time. He has the scars from the cross to prove it and so through tears now, we can declare great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. The injustice and the suffering you face now is nothing compared to the eternal welfare he is preparing for you. Take heart in that. And no matter what the world brings your way, we can look to Christ and trust in his promises. Let us look to him in prayer. Thank you, O oh Father for ordering this world in such a way that we desire justice. We pray that you would purify our, the aims of our heart, that we would seek justice in this world. But at the same time as we know this world is fundamentally broken, it will not ultimately come here before Christ returns. And so we pray that you would sustain us until such a time, that you would allow many to see the brokenness of their own souls brokenness of this world and run to Christ and flee to him because they have no hope outside of him. We thank you, Father, for these promises. Lift us up. Encourage us in Christ that we may glorify you in all that we do and say. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.